Hey everyone, this is the Everyday Leader Podcast, where we hear from inspiring individuals building and leading teams across Africa. Today, I speak with Tai Ajay from Lagos, Nigeria. Tai is a product and data champion, recently appointed vice president of product commercial at Propel. Before this appointment, he was head of growth at Propel. Previously, he worked as product manager at Centricity Inc., an AI machine learning startup based in New York City, and core site research as head of data product championing retail data as a product. He has several years of consulting under his belt, where he transformed talent acquisition and management strategy for many organizations. He is an MBA candidate at Lagos Business School and holds a bachelor's degree in management information systems from Covenant University. He loves poetry and has published a poem collection called God Must Be a Poet. Ty and I spoke about the communication, collaboration, and stakeholder influence needed as a product manager, as well as the importance of upskilling and coaching for success in this field. Additionally, he reflected upon his work at Propel, highlighting the need for sustainable hiring and support for tech communities in Africa. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Ty. Welcome to the Everyday Leader Podcast. Really excited to speak with you today. I'm excited to also speak with you, too. Great. So you uh, currently work as a, a product manager uh, for growth, I assume, at uh, Propel. Uh, and we'll definitely get into that. Uh, you've been there for about a year and a half. Uh, but you have uh, held a number of different product and you know, business roles uh, over the past decade or so. And I've seen that you uh, have held a number of different manager and leadership roles. And uh, what this podcast aims to achieve is you're really digging into um, what the experience has been how um, our guests have d- dived into their careers and really uh, tried to make the best of, of uh, their manager roles to drive change at their their companies and in the wider uh, ecosystem. And so I'm really interested to hear uh, your, your experience. You've uh, held a lot of uh, remote global roles. Obviously, that's uh, very much possible these days. Uh, but it seems like you, you know, really have uh, embraced that, and so I think that's something we'd love to talk about. But before before we do that, um, we usually kick things off by uh, having uh, the guests share an early leadership experience that uh, helped shape their approach to leadership or, or it highly impacted it. Uh, so maybe if you could share, uh, perhaps the the first time you stepped up into a manager role and what that was like and uh, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a story from you. All right, cool stuff. Uh, probably I'll make it to not one uh, because the first one was more exciting than the other. Um, the first one was pre-work experience, pre-professional um, life. Um, this was in university. Um, I mean, I mean, I probably been, I probably grew up being a leader. So I should say this, right? I've had. Um, so many opportunities in my life. Uh, I've just been a leader from pretty early in elementary school through to high school. But university was actually one time that I was more conscious about it and made so much difference, And which is why I want to talk about that briefly before I touch on my first managerial role, um, which will be in my professional life. Um, so first was university. Uh, I'm a writer, and I like that about me, uh, publishing poetry. And my first year in university, for some strange reasons, I stumbled with the head of the student affairs 
um, management, part of the management team, and he was talking about we they wanted to do something different um, in the next matriculation. And they wanted like poet laureates for the school uh, to come up with a nice uh, presentation, spoken word uh, for the school for the first time, right? And then he just dropped that in my laps, uh, which was pretty good. I remember how I went around recruiting people, right? So I built my team together, set like a purpose and started working. Um, that was super meaningful because 10 years after or 12 years after, I mean, those people are still super meaningful in my life. Like these are people that would reach out to me if they need clarity or they need to do something in their life, in their professional life or business life or personal life. And I do the same with them, right? So that's like one of the, first times in my life that I did appreciate leadership and especially for what it has done for me and them, right? That leadership makes life much more meaningful and creates like this connection that is continuous, that is transcendental, that we all need in our life and need to grow. Like all of that experience and the love and the care and the connection that you need as a human being to keep going, right? Which is one part. For the second part, I mean, the first time I became like a clear manager um, in the professional world was when I was officially appointed as the country manager for um, an HR consulting outfit um, based in Lagos, Nigeria called Doheny Services. Um, I was appointed as country manager, meaning that I had to manage um, people that have been in the organization way before me with more experience in a different function and also work with team members and proteges that I brought in, um, into the team. Um, it was super exciting for me because managing two sets of people with two different sets of motivation. And for those who I met in that organization, they've been there longer, experienced the organization in a different way. And for those who joined, I was like an actual mentor, someone who would drive a visionary because I'd come with fantastic ideas. Uh, we were cracking growth revenue growth, customer growth for the business, which was exciting, right? So dealing with two different groups with different motivation, right, uh, changed it for me. So I think for me as a leader, that was the first challenge. The first, the first challenge was how do I bring the team together to share an equal amount of motivation? Because I know that if some people are way excited than the others, what you will get is good results with some people and maybe not so great results with other people. But what I wanted was to, was to find an excellent average among the group, right? So that meant that I needed to tie the motivation of my proteges and people who believed in what I could do and what I could drive versus those who were just indifferent. And indifferent, not because of me, but just because they had been in the organization and maybe they had seen things and, and because of that, um, they couldn't find the extra motivation to look towards the future that I was more concerned and driving and pushing for, right? So I, I remember that one of the few things I did, I, I, of course, there were skirmishes and difficulties. Uh, one of them is just because who is this young person who has just showed up right from university, worked with us for like a year, and then he's country manager, right? So there was all, already the resistance of wow why should i work with this guy like who is this guy i know this guy is this guy's not pretty well for us but i mean why should he be why should he be leading the team today right so on one part it was also a time for me to learn to negotiate and um, before then i was like think of me like a whiskey like everything i touched turned to gold 
right? So because of that, I'll probably say I wasn't very humble <laughs> at the beginning and that taking this managerial experience made me learn humility. And the first way to learn humility was to learn to negotiate, right? So for the first time, I'm like, oh, you, you know what? I know I'm the leader of the team, but in the real sense, I'm not the leader of the team. You've been here longer. So I want to depend on your knowledge of history, like what you know about this company, the values and how it drives. Like I would depend on you to do that. But in terms of like all of the business decisions going forward, I would depend on myself to do that. So I had to do some form of negotiation around that. And that pretty much helped, right? I think that was one. Two was I had to reaffirm their role in the company to say, this is what you are good at. This is why you are here. This is how you've supported me. And this is how you supported the team. And based on this, this is what I would expect from you going forward. Like, I depend on you for these things. I depend on you for stability. I depend on you for support. The team also depends on you. And you can never fail us at this, right? So what I did was to create like this shared value with that, those groups of people to say, I depend on you to do these things. Like, I would, I would, it would be so difficult to succeed at my role and for the organization to make any sort of meaning or any profit or be able to drive our objectives if you are not in with me, right? So I think those were part of the negotiations I did. On the other hand, right, with the proteges and with the younger team members, it was more or less like, hey guys, we keep driving, we keep moving. But this was probably the biggest lesson for me that I had to stop doing what I did that made me a manager when I became a manager, right? I think that was the problem, right? I, I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. I would stay late at night and work. I would do, I would stretch myself. But when I became a manager, like my emphasis as a manager sort of changed. It became achieving more through people, right? So maybe for the first few weeks, it was pretty hard because I was used to, what do we need to get out? I can stay awake at night, get it out, come in the morning, present to the team. So, I mean, my typical approach would be get 60 to 70% of the work done and then put that out to the team as a basis for the work that they need to do. So it means in a few hours, you get the work out, you get everybody's input and you can move. When I became a manager, it became a little different. It meant that I needed a startup, right? I had to more or less do oversight, check what has been done or put a direction. So, I mean, my role typically changed because well, when a tax comes up or a goal comes up, what I would try to do is to give a direction. Okay, this is what I expect from the team. This is what I want from you. And then break the tickets, break all of the work out with team members. And then they get to work and then we have check-ins end of day, right? So my work changed. And what I was tempted not to do was to pick on some of those work myself and start doing that, right? Because typically you would assign tax to people. So I've seen managers who would do this, assign tax to people, and then on the other side, start working on the same tax, right? And, and the fear is that maybe he, if that person doesn't deliver, I'm not stranded. So I learned, number one, to trust people completely. So if I assign a tax to you, I actually would not do it. I'll wait for you to come back uh, with what you've done, and then we'll talk about it and walk through it. If that would require that we walk a little late, I would do that, right? So those were some of the things I had to learn to do, which was number one. Number two was I also had to fight for my team. And that would mean that even though I'd spent the early years working super late in the office as, as long as I did, when I became a manager, it became a rule that you would close at five o'clock. So five o'clock, everybody must close their computers and go home, right? 
come back the next day. Um, because those were some of the things I felt like I didn't do well um, uh, early on. But again, not like I didn't do well, it was required of me. I mean, it was a very lean team and we had a lot to do and it was just what was required. Of course, it wasn't healthy and I didn't want the team to work the way I did in that sense. I wanted them to be more effective, manage their time, get their work done within that time zone. Then it was still physical work, like go to the office physically. Um, so for me, what one of the things I did, which I drove, I mean, intentionally was we'll close work at five o'clock. So what that did was it put more constraint on the team, which is pretty good. Sometimes for you to get the best out of things, you need to put the constraint, right? So the constraint was you need to get your work out between nine and five and nothing else, right? Um, nobody works late. Uh, like, so we were pushing all of those things. And I think that they really worked. And the good thing also is that we had very good culture. I remember that the managing partner of the business would not call you after 6 p.m., right? She, she would send you a message and say, oh, you don't have to treat until tomorrow. I just wanted you to know this. And this is something that guided our behaviors towards each other and made sure that we respected people's times and we respected that people had other things that were also as important as work that they would love to do outside of work. I think that sort of shaped me. Um, in terms of like how I deal with people. So again, just to, just to conclude and recap, there were two groups of people that I had to deal with. One were those that were not very motivated. The other thing were those that were motivated. But what I had to do was to show them more trust, right? By putting more work in their hands and working with them daily and achieving more through them. Uh, which, so for my first experience as a manager, I think what, I mean, the things that shaped me were probably number one, learning to negotiate, learning to be humble uh, and then and the last bit would also be trusting people more so that you could actually walk through them I've recapped a lot of important learnings that you've had as as a manager and some of the best practices that it sounds like you really embraced um, I'm curious you know you spoke a lot about that that first experience and what it meant to um, you know the, the mental shifts and the behaviors that you needed to make uh, when you became a manager. Um, how did that uh, grow as you stepped into other manager roles in, in different organizations? Was was it similar, or did each um, new role and new organization uh, require you to further evolve as a manager? Yes, I, I think for every organization, I've had to <clears throat> I've had to evolve as a manager. Uh, but but again, uh, maybe at this point, I should mention something that's super important. Um, so, uh, I mean, after my first experience or during my first experience, I made it as a personal call to take a lot of, to take loads of psychometric tests. And what psychometric testing helps you do is just help you know yourself more. Um, so you can also see like your blind spots. Like one of the things I was always conscious of, and I'm still conscious of today, are actually my blind spots, right? And one of the ways to learn of those blind spots, of course, outside talking to your peers, your team members, and of course, the people you report to, one of the ways to do that so that you are self-aware of those things is actually take psychometric tests, right? So there was, there's one of this, there's one of them that I really like, I refer to, it's all about color energies and also explains your tendencies uh, with those color energies, right? So, for example, I'm a fiery red. Uh, think of this as the typical choleric leader, right? So it means that 
my mission is do it now <laughs> right so imagine working with yourself where your goal all the time is get it out of the way like if there's something we need to get out get it done all right so i had to be conscious of that and every time i go to a new team what i would try to do in the first few days is to understand um the colors that people led with right that's the proper way to put it so i would say i lead with a fairy red right so i would try to understand the colors that people led with and that way that helped me negotiate with them, right? So if I were dealing with, for example, a sunshine yellow, sunshine yellow are people who are visionaries, full of ideas, um, and they have like all of these nice, they can build like castles in the air. So working with those people, what you want to do is to create an environment where they are contributing. And what you are demanding of them is to give you all of those nice ideas. And what I do as a leader is to try to structure those ideas so that they are executed. Because I know that I have the execution power. If you are dealing with cool blue, cool blue are the super detailed people, right? So what you want to do is to push them and put tax on them and have conversations with them that make them do things that are very detailed. Uh, what you want to say to them is to push them to places of responsibilities where they are looking out for the team, they are looking out for compliance, for details and things like that. And of course, for the final group, uh, who are the Earth Green, these are like people who drive values. They are respectful, the way you speak to them. These are people that have taught me as a leader that um, <clears throat> because my communication style is being very direct, but with, with the cool blue, with the earth green, these are people that teach you in terms of how to say things properly, right? So how to talk to people, how to be very respectful, and how to manage emotions. So these are people on the team, number one, that tell you what the sentiments across the team is, right? So these are people that will express it. The other groups of people would keep quiet about how they feel, if they are dissatisfied, um, if they are not happy, or if they are in doubt but the cool green would typically show this and express this. So anytime they would express it, I know that that is a signal they are indicating for everybody. So just to put that out there, that the first thing I've always done, one thing I do all the time is to take a lot of these tests. They keep changing, right? But this is one of the psychometric tests that has stayed with me and I'll typically take that at least once every year, just to understand myself. Because as a leader, you have to be aware of yourself. Most importantly, you have to be aware of your blind spots right thinking about that then to the second part of the question at every point in time i've had to evolve now the good thing about my life is after four or five years working consulting i decided that i need i wanted to take my mba because i wanted to transition to tech fully and just to also put some background here is in my first degree i studied man management information system which is like tech um, and the whole process of that is you study how software are built and just understand the software life cycle. So which is why I'm a product manager today, because in that sense, I had that sort of training. So taking the MBA where you had to lead other people that were as smart as you, right? So for the first time in my life, working with people who were just as smart as you, who have worked for 10 years, 15 years, even longer, right? More experienced than you. So thrown again in a different environment. Within that environment um, is, is uh, leadership by peer, is peer leadership, meaning, you are leading other people, they are leading you at the same time. So it was completely different, right, from where I was coming from. Uh, I would typically crack a joke with my friend to say, in my first job where I became a country manager, the politics was around me, right? But getting into the MBA, the politics became different. It was around different people. And what do I mean by that? Every single person on the team had their strength areas, 
and that would show up whenever we were treating cases right so typically in my group for example when there are hr related cases or business related cases transformation cases those were things i was pretty strong at i would excel at those things uh, where there were tech cases i would excel at those things but every time we went to finance or that there were other people on the team who would excel at those things right so one of the things i learned quickly to evolve was number one to see that power is shared power is never for one person i think for the first time in my life it became super realistic at the MBA program. Yes, I would hear that and I would subscribe to that philosophy and say power should be a shared value. You should not stick with one person and stuff. But the first time that was practical to me was within my cohort in the MBA, right? And I think that that prepared me for my career in tech. So when I moved to tech, I mean, tech is about shared powers, right? Um, I would, uh, most of the times, whenever I try to talk to product managers, uh, whenever I'm talking to them about the career, I'm like, oh, you're not a when you, you becoming a product manager doesn't mean you're a manager of people in the research, you're a manager of the product. And that's because in tech, everything around tech is shared responsibility, shared decision making. Not no one person makes a decision in tech. In a proper tech startup, the decisions are shared among like tons of different people. Number one is you are taking requirement for customers. You are talking to your business executives, you are talking to your engineering managers, you are talking to your designer, you are talking to your UX researcher. So all of these things, what you are doing is just renegotiating, renegotiating. And if you are super vast with the Scrum methodology that puts responsibility on everybody. So everybody's responsible for their work, everybody's transparent, I need to champion and trust them. So for me in my life today, where I am as an individual is no longer that hierarchy of people who report to you is more or less like people who you share decisions and power with and this is the way the modern world is structured today where you have to share where you are coming to the table and you are all contributing and part of the biggest part of my role today is now influencing people and influencing decisions right because as a product manager all the time i mean your biggest goal your biggest purpose as a product manager is to ensure that um, you know the why, but most importantly, you are refining the why of your product. And you are doing that with customers. You are listening to the sentiments of the market, looking at competitors, just understanding the general landscape of things, right? So today, my biggest job, I would say, my biggest skill, I mean, the biggest thing I have stuck to um, in my role as a leader is influence, influencing people, influencing decisions, um, influencing directions, and doing this with people in a way that is very collaborative, right? That is two-sided, that is three-sided, where every single individual actually makes an input into that process. And that way it becomes bigger. We're all transparent, we're all accountable to each other. And this is how to drive. So for me, this is how my leadership has evolved into one that is shared. So I'll think of it as shared purpose, shared meaning, um, shared responsibility, shared accountability, and that way it works for everybody. Wow, um, that that's super powerful. You mentioned about you know your transformation uh, as a manager into the, the tech sector and uh, particularly in, in the product role where you're you're not necessarily managing people, but you are you know negotiating uh, all the various demands across uh, a product uh, ranging from the company uh, staff to the customers uh, and other influencers. And that, you know, your uh, business school experience uh, helped with that um, transformation. 
Um, could you speak a bit more about uh, how you decided that business school was something worth pursuing at that time in your career? Um, and would you recommend others that uh, are, are also interested in product management, product management and, or, and related careers uh, on whether that's something uh, worth pursuing or what types of individuals would be best suited to uh, consider that option? Thank you. Um, interesting. Um, so I need to give like a, a little story around why I chose to go to the business school and then I'll answer the second question. Um, so the first bit for me, this this is what it was for me, right? Um, so I did quite a lot of work within the first four years of my career working and doing it. I, I, I think that I was thrown deep into everything, uh, which, which is why I became country manager within that time. I did quite a bit of work. I did quite a lot of work. Like I did a lot of transformations. Um, I helped pretty large scale of small organizations, corporates. I did a lot of work. I did, I mean, what you would typically call organization design. I delivered many successful projects within that four-year space. And it was a lot of work. Like, if, if you think about it, I think it was probably 10 years worth of work in three years. And so what had happened to me then was because I interacted, because of the nature of my job, I interacted with board members, with with directors, and I would look at the business from their perspective. And one of the things I quickly learned was how difficult it was for people within the HR role to transit into becoming like the, the chief executive, right? So I would typically crack a joke with my friends and say, um, one sector to look at, for example, in Nigeria um, uh, is the banking sector or the financial services. And to look at a trend there, if you look at the trend there, it tells you what happens in other sectors. So I'll typically say to them that looking at the financial services in Nigeria, um, there's only been probably one transfer of position from the HR head, head of HR to chief executive, right? And that was even interim for a few months, right? So I knew in my career that I wanted to be CEO, I wanted to be top of the business. I wanted to drive those sort of decisions. Again, because I, I see myself as a leader, I see myself as one who can transform, change organizations, change, uh, influence things, drive things, cause progress in that sense. And I knew that that was what I was destined for. That's what I wanted. So also studying the landscape also showed me that the chance of making it into that position as HR was pretty low. Pretty, pretty low. Like I said, one in 100, which is like 1%. Right, and I, 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 that's number one. Number two was also from my interactions with the board. I sort of understood their perspective of how to look at business. Typically, if you had to promote someone to the role of chief executive, you want someone in sales and strategy, someone who can drive revenue and drive organic growth, right? That's someone you think about all the time. Maybe the next person you want to look at is someone in operations, someone who can manage cost who can reduce your cost centers, who can understand and manage your cost drivers, right? And then maybe the third part will now be someone who does people or other things, right? So this is what happens typically whenever um, board members sit and they're trying to make a decision on who their next chief executive would be, right? So this is the exposure I got within the first three or four years of my career. And that informed and shaped what my aspirations would look like. So I knew that if I wanted to be um, 
a top executive, a top CEO of a top organization, that I had to move from where I was to a different area of impact, right? So that was one of the things that informed my decision to go to the business school. So what it was for me was I decided two things. I set two goals that in the next three years, number one, I would, I would um, transition to tech. Number two, I will become a leader in tech. And for that to happen, I felt like I needed to take that business goal. And like I said, the first four years was pretty intense. I actually thought that going to the business school was like taking a break. But I, I didn't know that the business school is worse off. Like, never you do that. The business school is not a career break. It's, it's more intense than work, right? That 18 months was super intense, was probably more intense than the first three years of my life. Everything happened in one and a half years. So that's probably one of the mistakes or one of the things I thought about the business. It was not a career break. It was so intense for me. And that sort of prepared me for my next steps. And this, this is the trick. This is something I've done all my life to set goals. I set goals. I set very clear goals. And two years after that, I transitioned to tech. I'd become a leader in tech, right? Because I set those two goals. On the second part, for you to pursue a career in product management, you don't need to go to business school. I just think that you just need to pick up the skills um, that a product manager should have. And there are three major skills. The first one is your ability to communicate in a very simple way, like communicate in a way that everybody understands. So, I mean, coming into product has made life, has made me focus and try to communicate even better because that's what product management makes you do. Like you write requirements that every single person must understand. Like you write it like any user, the person doesn't have to be technical. The person just understands what you are saying. Number two is that you have to be able to drive extreme collaboration with people. Like if you get into any product manager role, this, I mean, the skill that you need is for people to be excited to work with you. I mean, this is something I also picked up in early on in my career that there are certain persons that we're excited to work with. There are certain persons that we don't want to work with. A product manager, you always have to put yourself in that place where everybody wants to work with you. If you're able to do that, you'll be able to get the best from the team and get all of the support. And of course, the last part of your work as a product manager, I mean, the third most important thing is being able to influence stakeholders. That's what your job is. I mean, as a product manager, you spend 90% of your time doing three of these things. Yeah communicating, talking to people either in meetings, writing um, your product requirements, or collaborating with engineers, with designers, with researchers, talking to customers. Or the last part is you're trying to influence stakeholders on decision-making. Because one of the things you drive as a product manager is your overall product vision. And the only way you can drive this is by influencing everyone, from the executive to the engineering managers, to your customers, to the sector as a whole. Right. So these are like three skills that you need to build outside, of course, the technical skills. I think the technical skills are like maybe 10 percent that you need to pick up that anybody can pick up, which is why it's been easy for a lot of people to transition from whatever roles they have into product management, because those are the real skills that you need to transfer and keep using. You will probably find product managers who are super detailed, and that means that their communication is pretty great. Right. But the whole point of it, like I said, is to drive these three core skills. And that helps you to be a super successful product manager. So you don't need to go to business school. But however, if you set a goal to transition into a leader in tech, going to business school might be useful for you because it helps you understand 
the general tech space. So for example, I'm a product manager with a difference. I understand commercials. I understand the cost drivers, revenue drivers, how everything works. So I'm not just a typical product manager. You can think of me as one who also understands the business. So I know the plus and minuses. I can do the models. I can do projections. Like those are things that have helped me in all of my roles, which is why, for example, every single organization that has me working with them, consulting for them, I'm always super excited because I'm multifaceted. Like I can look at it as a product manager, I can look at it as a business owner, I can look at it from just different points of view. I, I still have, of course, all of my HR expertise, uh, people management, transformation, all of those things also sit with me because uh, one of the things I probably would say I've been privileged, I've been so privileged to enjoy is because I started my career in consulting. And if you start your career in consulting, you learn to do everything. And by that, you can actually take on everything. So think of me as a generalist in that sense. Like I could take up on anything. If there's any problem, I would solve it because I would think of myself as a problem fixer. Again, remember what I said about my personality. I may do it now. If there's a problem, let's sit on it and get it out of the way and move on. Like I like to make progress in that sense, right? So for me, that is, this is, these are all of the inputs that have made me a better leader and a pretty good product manager because of all of these different backgrounds and nuances. And this is what I would say to people that for every individual, your product management journey is different and it's unique to you. So you need to bring those unique traits, unique um, learnings, unique educational background, unique experiences, fuse it together and form it into a, the product manager that you alone can be. And that's what my story is today. That's fascinating. Thank you uh, so much for taking us through all of the different facets that um, come together to form the type of leadership and uh, management style that, that you bring and, and the value really that you bring in uh, to your companies that you work for. And with that in mind, I'd love to kind of fast forward to today where uh, you work with Propel. Can you speak a bit more about uh, what the company does and, and how your role is contributing towards its mission. Uh, I'm assuming it's related to helping its product uh, evolve and grow. So we'd love to hear more about that. All right, fantastic. Uh, Propel is an exciting company. Uh, our mission is to curate the entire tech talent ecosystem in Africa. And we're doing it in a very sustainable way, right? Um, we know about the tech crisis, tech talent crisis in Europe um, and America, where, I mean, the scarcity of talent, right? And then push that back to emerging markets like Africa, where the numbers are growing every year, they are doubling every year, right? But what we realized was these numbers are not just growing by themselves, right? People are not just switching and transitioning to tech by themselves. They are doing that through communities. Right, they are doing that through tech communities. And tech communities are just groups, focus groups um, that try to train people on certain skills, right? They do it as a matter of interest, right? So for example, you see people who are just interested in learning um, UI designs and they put people together and start teaching them UI designs for free, right? So this is the reason, this is the driver of the growth of tech talents in Africa, 
Right, so what Propel has done or what Propel is doing, what we've been able to do in the last year or so is to bring all of these communities together in one space so that you are creating a continuous pipeline of top tech talents for all of these jobs, for all of the global job opportunities around the world. That's what we're doing. So we're doing it very sustainably. So what we're doing is called sustainable, sustainable hiring, right? So this way we are resourcing. There's a continuous pipeline of people we are continuously building and putting this out. But why we are doing this again, we're community focused. So we we'll think of ourselves as community as a service. So Propel is a community as a service platform, CAS. Right. So what we are doing is aggregating all the tech communities in Africa, number one, and bringing all of these global job opportunities to them. Right. We are providing access to work to them because we realize that communities actually train people. But the last mile, they are not able to fulfill the last mile. After you train people, so what, what happens to them? Right. You want to offer them jobs. But more importantly, what we are also doing is supporting those communities. And that's why everything around what we do is about sustainability. That's what we are driving in terms of that. But for that to happen, we also need to support the communities. How do we do that? We do that by number one, providing what we call the value stack. So there are two things we are giving to them, a value stack and a tool stack. The value stack is what we are building at the moment. And the tool stack is something we would reveal towards the end of the year. The value stack has three main components. Number one is access to work, which I just spoke about, which is access to global job opportunities so that people could work remotely while we represent them, ensuring that this works. And this is super important because um, um, hiring organizations in the West do not understand the African context, right? They don't know what it means, for example, for an engineer to have worked in a top unicorn in Nigeria called InterSwitch. But we can put that in a profile. We can contextualize all of that information so that the hiring manager in Europe, for example, understands if you see an engineer that's worked for InterSwitch for two years, this is what it means. The engineer is as good as someone who works at Stripe or Revolut in the UK, right? So that's like the first thing we do. The second thing we do is what we call perks, right? Because the whole point of this is to be able to support communities to continue to grow and give more to their members. So we offer them perks. We offer them discounts on utilities, on everything that they need as community people. So for example, I need to buy a computer. I need to replace my MacBook. On Propel's platform, you can get up to 30%, 40% discount off to purchase MacBook. And the whole point of this is to make it pretty easy so that communities can do can just keep training people and making them qualified where we will sift through that pipeline and make sure that there is this continuous flow of tech pipelines moving and just achieving the jobs of their dreams right that's the second part the third part is embedded finance like access to finance and financial services what we are doing there is to offer them um, between uh, micro pensions micro loans just being able to give them buy now pay later offer them all of those services just because you belong to a community so because you're a community member we give you access to all of these things just to support your growth and development as a tech talent so in terms of my role um when i joined in a few 14 months ago that was when the, the company was pivoting into this right so what i've been doing is championing product development product definition driving growth from that sense, just looking at in terms of how do we grow our ecosystem of communities across Africa. So today we have over 100 tech communities spread across East, West, 
South and Northern Africa, right? We have that and we're still expanding. And we have over 500,000 people within our ecosystem who belong to these communities. At the end of the year, we want to be able to do about 2 million, right? We're driving all of that. So that, that means that continuously you have flow of top tech, top tech talents across Africa that can be placed in opportunities quickly. So shortening the time to hire, number one. Number two is you're getting quality. Number three, like I said, you are also getting contextual information. So you are dealing with people who contribute, who are high contributors to their communities, who love their work, who are proud of their work, and who have all of these big dreams and want to achieve it in your company. Right, so that's what I've been doing and driving, driving all of that growth, driving with partners, building the product, understanding all of that. So it's been a long journey, but I'm excited about what we are doing at Propel and how we are changing the story uh, about tech talent in Africa and hiring around the world. Yeah, so that's amazing work that you're doing uh, at Propel and uh, trying to essentially ca capture, you know, the the work being done by communities to upskill tech talent and uh, connecting them to the right resources to fill that global uh, tech uh, talent gap in crisis. So um, incredible work that, that you and your team are doing. And just as we start to wrap up today's conversation, I wanted to create some space for you to share um, any other insights uh, or any other trends that you're observing firsthand in either the sector that you're in or uh, the product manager space. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll hand it over to you for some final thoughts from you. Um, I mean, I mean, what, what I would just say is just um, what's happening in terms of the proliferation of um, product managers on the continent, <laughs> right? Um, I, I think that um, that that is something we need to take a look at, and and not from a control point of view, but just from a, um, an upskilling point of view. I, I think that there's been a proliferation, and 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 I typically like joke around with this to say, ten years ago, finishing university in Nigeria, for example, everybody wanted to be in human resource, right? Everybody wanted to be an HR manager, right? Ten years after, like everybody in Nigeria wants to be a product manager. Um, but but my worry is just in terms of the upscaling that happens, and I'm just worried that if we don't do something about it uh, by just being more conscious in terms of coaching people, getting people through that journey so that people get and understand what the role is really about before they get their first job or before they start even professing that they are product managers, that that will help us a whole lot. Um, I knew that when I decided to make this transition a few years ago, I reached out to a number of people. I mean, these are the things I did, but I don't know if every other person does it. Um, so what I did was to reach out to the top five product managers in Nigeria at that time. And I had like one-on-one -on -one calls with them for 30 minutes to one hour, just asking them about the role. I know one of them, what she said to me that stood out, and, and her name is Toby. She's probably one of the most influential product managers in Nigeria and Africa, if you think about it. She's the one that leads um, Product Dive, um, a good organization that actually trains people. So for anyone listening to me and thinking about a career in product management, I think that is that is a school, that is a course that you should take because she's super thorough. She went through, like she's gone through the process and she ensures that she fits that process back into her training course and the program, they're very intentional and deliberate. And I've spoken to people who have gone through the program. I think it has made them way better. 
um, way better product managers than they would have been if they decided to just start off or take their first job without going through that. So for me, I, I think one of the things to look out for is just the knowledge gap. Um, I'll probably say the just the, the career knowing, that's what I would call it, of just being a good product manager and so that everybody doesn't get stuck at it. Because the truth is not everyone is going to eventually become a product manager. And which is why I think that it's good for people to go through that sort of assessment. I mean, I think everyone should put themselves through it. So I'm not saying that there should be like a rule or no, I just think everybody should be able to, everyone should be put through that assessment, right? Especially for those who want to eventually become product managers. I mean, you probably, just like product management and want to read about it or go along with it, that's fine. If you're just learning for the sake of learning, I think it's great. But if you want to take a role, lead a team, drive a product vision, work with people and make actual difference in people's lives, especially in tech, I think it's important that we all go through that product assessment, right? Where everybody just checks to see um, do I really understand what this is about? Do I really want to do it? So that it doesn't look like a drove, like a trend that everyone is just jumping in, which is one part. On the other part, I'll also say that there are several leaders, um, there are several product leaders spread across Africa um, that should also take this as a pain that they really care about and want to do something about. And which is why I spoke about Toby with Productive. I think she's doing something about it. And I think that more leaders can also take this up and do something about it. I mean, there's all of these courses on Product School, which is fantastic resource for people to use. But for some strange reasons, people are not people are not going there, right? And I just think that this just means that we need human elements. We actually need people. This is just beyond taking classes online or watching YouTube videos. People actually need to have conversations with um, the much more experienced product leaders to have conversations about these things and take them through that assessment um, so that it prepares them. I mean, it does three things. Number one is that it filters people who really don't want to do this, who just really want a career in tech, right? And they were thinking product manager was a thing, right? I think it helps them just filter those people out. The second group is it helps the second group to just prepare for it, right? So that you are not just jumping into something blind and then trying to understand it and making a mess of it. Um, it's completely different if, of course, I would expect people to grow and develop true roles. But what I'm talking about is isn't just in terms of just ensuring that um, there is growth in terms of product knowledge, right, on the African continent. Um, today, everything seems to come from the West, from Europe, from America. What I'm talking about is where we are creating our own kind of knowledge on product that is contextual to Africa. Because, I mean, Africa, I mean, every part of the world is different. Context is always important. And what I'm speaking to more is around product management practice within Africa. I'm just being able to raise those standards and drive things up from there. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Ty, for, for sharing that. And it's very clear that uh, not only are you passionate about growing your own career and the company that you work for, but you also care deeply about uh, you know, keeping that ladder open for others that want to pursue similar careers in the product space and making sure that uh, the product manager role and the career type is something that is accessible uh, and also, you know, um, held to, to a standard that will make sure that uh, companies around the world that want to hire 
African product managers, um, that there's credibility and uh, quality there. So thank you for all the work that you do. Thanks for reflecting on your career with us today and sharing these really, really valuable, valuable insights with us. Um, I look forward to following you on your journey. It sounds like you're, um, you've already done a lot of great things and will continue to uh, do more and more great things. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you.